This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. Rock. Paper. Pixels. I am Patrick Avioli, and welcome to Rock Paper Pixels. Our guest today is a New York Times bestselling author, brand storyteller, adjunct professor at LIU Post, and a member of the Friars Club. He has a professional certification in sports entertainment and live event marketing from New York University and earned his Bachelor of Arts degree in business administration from Adelphi University. As the principal of his own company, he works with clients including Price Waterhouse Coopers, Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, Mattel, the Children's Cancer Center at NYU Winthrop Hospital, WWE, which we will be talking a lot about, and Take-Two Interactive, among others. His books have been published through Simon & Schuster, Penguin Random House, and his most recent book, Second Nature, is the dual memoir of wrestling legend Nature Boy Ric Flair and his daughter Charlotte, and was published by St. Martin's Press. And I'd like to say a nice welcome to Brian Shields. Hi, Brian. How are you? Patrick, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for that very kind introduction. It's well, it's great to be here. Well, it's one. Uh, I'm so happy with everyone who has done this podcast so far, and I think it's extremely cool that uh, you came on. I, I, I never really read uh, your background as much. I've seen you lots over the last year. We've become friendly. Yes. And the fact that you gave your book to my son, autographed, has sent him into a loop for a while. He thinks you're a very cool guy, which is great. Uh, and it was really kind to you to, to do that. And thank you for coming to his little presentation and, and you know being part of it. It was really good. Oh, he rocked it. He did okay. He's a little scary, but I'm never going to be like Dad. <laughs> and then meanwhile, you're sitting there, you know, and you're listening to him do that. And, you know, you just go, wow, he really jumped on top of this one. Uh, the thing I want to start with you is I, I really want to talk about how far uh, social media has come in the mm-hmm. earliest days here. And it's just amazing about how it's become such a major part of industry, entertainment, everything you could consider. And it's kind of amazing the strength that it's had. I want you to talk about your path in this ever-changing space. And this is really brand storytelling. You know, social media today is about keeping that brand story out there in front of the world. And how many years have you been in this space of originally telling the stories? And where did you start? So I wanted you to kick off with a little bit of a short bio and career path and where you are today. And then we'll jump into the rest of this. Sure. Um, I'm going to do my best to not make this a a never ending monologue. Um, (laughs) This actually last month marked uh, my 20th year. Wow. Wow. Uh, working in the quote-unquote real world. Um, My career began in the entertainment business, uh, working in the sports marketing department of a video game company that was called Acclaim Entertainment. Of course. Um, So members of your audience, hardcore gamers, maybe some older members of your audience, the company's been gone now 14 years. But Acclaim was one of the large one of the first home video game companies that were really, really large. I mean, they were the first company to have the Marvel license, the Simpsons, WWE, which back then was called the WWF. 
Okay. Um, they had the pro, uh, pro sports teams. And, Patrick, what really set a claim off into the stratosphere at the time was in the early 90s, their arcade to home console oh, yeah. conversions of Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam. So, um, you know, the, the company started off in Oyster Bay. Sure. They, they uh, had, they built a, a beautiful office from the ground up in Glen Cove. Sure. Um, I remember where, driving by it. Right. So... So that was where my my career began, and uh, to use a dated reference, my mother used to say that it was like Tom Hanks' character in Big working sure. at the uh, to fictitious toy company. But you know, for me, that's where my career started, and um, the video game business was then and is still now very entrepreneurial. Yes, and I, it was a great way for me to learn so many different skills uh as someone who was you know just starting out and see that's the thing that's going on today in the social media space it almost mirrors the beginnings of game that it's very entrepreneurial it's very autonomous you are creating your world as you go on a daily basis uh, instagram changes snapchat changes and you have to work with those so i think that training was probably excellent for you it, it really was because there were always these entrepreneurial pursuits that were really a combination of the business discipline and mm. art of marketing and product marketing and branding coupled with the really the, the, the emergence of what we now call and have called Web 1.0. Sure. I, I mean, the video game business was one of the first to embrace, and I use that word deliberately, sure. embrace the digital space. So, you know, our marketing plans and campaigns and strategies always had a large percentage of its budget in the, in the online space. So whether it was a product-dedicated website um, banner ads, skyscrapers, interstitial ads, all of those things that were, you know, really coming into their own the at origins. the time. Sure, yeah. Uh, and even video. I mean, releasing video trailers, behind-the-scenes footage, all of these things that are almost taken for granted today. They're annoyances today. Right, right. They're annoyances today. I mean, you walk out of the subway in Manhattan – and there's a there's a, a probably a 50 inch video screen sure. on the top of the subway sign as you walk in or out of the subway and to get on the street. But, you know, back then it was really important to the game business to have all this stuff up online and just to, you know, because uh, all a lot of these terms, Patrick, as you know, are relative. So when I say like a large part of its budget. You know, I mean, if you have like a million dollar marketing budget and you're divvying it up over TV, print, radio, which were the traditional uh, ad avenues back then, sure. you know, in the games business in the late 90s, early 2000s, you were still dedicating like, you know, 30 percent to to online activity. That's amazing. Uh -huh. Because back you know, then I had to I was working with a group of startup out in Bohemia four of my students and me, and we had to explain to every ad agency what yeah. we were talking about. 
Yes. If we yeah. had had you with what we knew, that would have been a wonderful build between the two companies. Well, I mean, it was it, it definitely would have been. And it was great training for me because it's because of the way that that the Internet has evolved. Um, user reviews, journalists, okay, you know, yes. going online. Uh, and that was one of the things that really changed the entire business. But it was a it was a great great training ground for me i started there patrick as a summer intern <laughs> and uh, i left there six and a half years later as a global brand manager and um the relationships that i made they catapulted your career from the absolutely and so much of the work that i do today is grounded in the disciplines that i first learned and the relationships that I first made at that job. And I am proud to say, because there's always a little bit of a soft spot in my heart sure. for a claim, um, that they had a motion capture studio. Sure, I remember. I remember reading about all this. Yeah, the that had a sound studio and a photo studio in it. Uh, and I mean like the soundproof booths. I mean all of it. They were really dedicated to this, huh? And yes, and um, and they were so visionary in a lot of ways that that space on the ground level of that building is still used as a motion capture studio, and oh. it is owned today by Take Two Interactive, and has oh. been for many many years. So there's still a little bit of the video game business. Uh, going on in downtown Glen Cove. <laughs> that's that's wonderful. Well, the next question was going to be, had you segue into brand storytelling, but you you answered that, and that is that, and it guess it wasn't difficult. You were really in the right spot at the right time with the right set of potential skills, nurtured in the right environment to go forward. I, you know, I, I, and that's, I think one of the reasons why I, I speak about my time there with such reverence. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that I share with my students, uh, because I'm such a proponent of internships. Oh my God. Yes. Is, you know, and I, I try not to talk about myself too much, but I, I just feel like in this one area, I'm an example of, you know, someone who got an internship and was doing a combination of like real work, yeah, but also the grunt work that you have to do to prove yourself. The, yeah. you know, sending out. Well, at the time, gosh, it was sending out faxes every Monday morning. <laughs> it was you know taking meeting notes, distributing minutes from the meeting. A lot of these things that you know you have to do when you're 19, 20, 21 years old, or just starting out to prove that you could be trusted doing other things. And, uh, and it's all internships are also great. I found because when I went back in the fall, Patrick, for my senior year at Adelphi, all of my business classes to finish up my senior year were so much easier. Sure. You understood what they were talking about. Absolutely. And it was by no accident and look, I was a good student. I, I wasn't yeah. great because um, I just I just didn't take to it that way um, until probably my sophomore year 
junior year when I started taking, when I left the core curriculum sure. and started really taking uh, subjects that I was passionate about. Um, I also was a great example of boys don't mature as quickly as girls. Especially <laughs> uh, when you're in college. You, you know, back then. But, you know, it was not an accident that my senior year was my best year academically um, because it was just, I was invigorated every day and the, the classes that I took were easier because of the work that I was still doing, um, at a, at a, at a, as a part-time intern at the time. Yeah. Well, no one had to convince you that they were relevant, right? Exactly. No one had to explain to you that, you know, this is important and exactly. that's, and I think that's a key thing. I want to go on from here for a second. That's a great background on you. Internships, I firmly believe in from day one, from 30 years ago when I started teaching. The thing I don't like about them is if they are not paid internships, if uh, I had a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, say to me one time, that kid should be paying me for this job. And I was like, wow, really? But okay. Anyhow, I think internships are fantastic. Your story about a claim... Yeah, God, it's like it should almost be a, a documentary. And I knew they've done this with other things, mm -hmm. but it really, uh, this, they just did it with LIR, where Julie Price was in the documentary on LIR. She was the original uh, marketing director. But they yes. should actually be an interesting story to see on a claim. I know they've done it on Atari with the whole E.T. game getting buried in the desert. Oh, that that documentary was so good. And, uh, you know, it's funny because people have talked about it. I mean, the founders of the company uh, came from, like, the record business, the early days of the video game business. And one of oh, the yeah. original people who started it was uh, was part of the, the group that started MTV. Yes, yes. So... You know, I, I mean, there were so many people. And when I think of the people who I learned from, it's frightening, right? It's it's unbelievable. And I um, and I really I mean, it's and the other great thing I want to mention about internships, because I tell this to my students as well, is it's also a great opportunity to get an, an idea of, OK, well, I love this as a person. Right. But this is the reality of this right. on day to day business, because. I got my internship because the original summer intern for the sports team got fired. God. And, you know, there were people who just like, you know what? I love video games. I love entertainment. But on a day-to-day -day level, doing this Can as I a job this, yeah. is, is not for me. And I'm glad that I realized this over the course of a summer. As opposed to 20 years. Right. You know, it's really just a joke for a second. You got fired from a job that they're not even paying you to do. God almighty, how bad was that person doing that job? <laughs> well, that was, you know, that, that was the thing was, was uh, I got called in at the end of May, uh, early June. I'm sorry, early June for this interview. And they told me flat out, you know, they, they said, they said, this is possible because the summer intern was here a few weeks and couldn't cut it. Just really couldn't cut it. And 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 not only did that send a message to me in terms of like that this is serious, but the way it was communicated to me also sent a message. 
<laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> we just wasted three weeks of training. Let me know now. Are you going to do the same thing? Right. I think I think it's also a little bit of that biz. I taught at USDAN for seven years in the summers. I was on the original team that put together the game design program here. I, so cool. I was on the search for the first director, Elena Bertozzi, and I was on search for the current director, Ramiro Corbetta. And I've been involved in this now for well over a decade, from my right. earliest days at USDAN. And the parents, these young kids, 9, 10, up to 16, they would come in and the attitude for the parents would be, well, he likes or she likes to play games. I'm sure he'll like to build them. And that's kind of what you're saying right there. No. No, they don't equal. It's it's too different. So let me ask you a question. Yes. This transformation to digital. Yes. Right. Students and faculty. But let's talk about your students first. All right. Now you're, how old are you, Brian? Do you mind if I ask? I I don't mind. uh, I'm 41. I just turned 41. Fantastic. You look younger, but you're still not 20. So now you're standing in front of a room. (laughs) Yeah. I'm 62, dude. I'm going soon. So now you're standing in front of a room of 20-year-olds, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. Yes. And you're talking to them about a space that they live in every minute of their lives. Right. How do you come off as an authority? How do you make yourself that? Can you? Um, How how are you that much of authority that they're going to listen to whatever it is you're trying to tell them? You know, I, I don't really think of it that way. Okay, good. Um, and the reason why is because um, I just, I share, well, one of the things that I do in my first class of the semester is I, you know, I give them, like the first half of the class is an introduction where I introduce myself, talk a little bit about my career, and then I kick it over to them. My my attitude, especially because these most of them are juniors and seniors, is this is a work session. And I tell them I'm very I speak to them like they're adults. I explain that to them. Um, I work through my business. I work with people who are in their age group, a little older, a little younger. So my expectations are very high. Good. And I'm very direct with them. And I. I think what I think is because of my background, I think that it's something that is relatable to them. I think because you're, please don't take this wrong, you're adjunct, not full time. And many, many people, yeah, many people say uh, those who can do, those who can't teach, right? So you being that step over into both worlds heavily gives you validation, especially with this young group. You know, I, I, I think I think you're right. And I, I think it's something where, um, you know, when, when you talk about the, the kind of work that you're doing. Yes. And, and how you're applying it. You know, I run my classes in, in my own way, which I'm very grateful for. It's the beauty of college, right? Absolutely. And um, and I think the other thing, too, Patrick, is because this I teach, you know, digital marketing and social media, <laughs> they're, they're one on one courses. And I think because this age group has grown up in this environment, um, it's the principles and concepts are easier for them to grasp. Yeah, but when when you start talking about 
how this needs to become a revenue stream, mm-hmm. how this needs to be monetized. Yes. Has that ever, have you ever seen a recoil on their face of like, why are you taking my my environment, my world, my fun time, and not just fun time, but their social time. Why are you taking this now and you're putting a price tag on this? Does you ever see them pull back from wanting to do that? Um, well, they, I, I, they don't pull back. They, they voice their gotcha. displeasure. They do, right? Yes. Yeah. So I guess in a way that is pulling back, but it's not, it's not a, a pullback as in like, I'm not going to um, do it, but it's a we're pullback not, we're and not doing this. Yeah. It's a pullback. Um, like, I can't believe you're making me do this. Right. Like, like they're disappointed at yes. the number of ads yes. or, um, they're disappointed in, um, the algorithm nonsense that <laughs> is that, you know, when you think about what social media is from a personal use standpoint, it's, evil. you know, we're, we're taking something that's very simple and, and making it overcomplicated because of what you're talking about. And that's monetization. Well, here's my thing. I, I don't want to go. I have a real issue with digressing all over the place, but we've had a few conversations. So I think we can communicate this well. My whole thing is uh, if this market space, this group, this user base, was more accepting of it being a business as opposed to the ball pit at Chuck E. Cheese, maybe Mark and all those boys and girls would not have had to enlisted the aid of Cambridge Analytics. Analytica. Maybe they wouldn't have had, because if the revenue stream was more supported and not objected to, you know, their valuations are in the billions, Right. Obviously. Right. Right. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, you know, everybody, even Airbnb, you know, Uber, of course. So now if it maybe had made itself into the mainstream acceptable as a pay environment, I don't know. Maybe they wouldn't have reached down the road to a Cambridge Analytica to boost up their their revenue so they could justify it to the shareholders. Because, you know, you do go to jail if your IPO is not real. Right. Right. You know, yeah. You understand and, and my I, point. I mean, I, I do. And I, I well, I think that the other thing with uh, with Facebook is it's very interesting. It's a very interesting look in number of active users versus registered users. And that has shifted like crazy over right. the last six months. Right. And and even the because um, we talk about it in my class. The a lot of the students over the last few years I've 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 seen is they go on Facebook maybe once a day to scroll through the news feed and it's almost like a habit. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to posting their stuff, they're on either Instagram or um you know, Snapchat or yeah, whatever. Yeah, because they ran away from that vehicle because, right. first of all, mom or dad tried to friend them. Right. Secondly, they're be- they're seeing how much it has been commercialized, how much it has been made into a business. Right. And by nature, they're all uh, James Dean in Rebel Without a Clue. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're pulling away from whatever is the norm. Yeah, and, and one of the things that yeah. I think is important is for everybody to understand that 
you know, when you start talking about things in a business context and people don't like it, but it's about sales. It's about yes. generating revenue because the lights have to turn on. Well, here's a question in the middle of that. I'm please. I, I I hate to say this like this. I'm 62. I know in my brain I'm still a 12 year old, but I am 62, and I do look back a little bit because I've been with this. I've been in this space since '94, actually '86. Wow. Launched my first CD-ROM. I was minor, minor, minor part of a team at McGraw Hill, but I saw it. I saw that paper encyclopedia go to a CD-ROM. Yep. In 1986. And I said, wow, this is going to seriously change things, right? So now, seeing it for 32 years now, it's kind of wild. The evolution of it, the slowness for it to be realized as a business is the most frustrating thing to me. And I think their perspective on this is why it gets my uh, kind of dander up. A little bit like when are you gonna you are the guys who built this made this live this when are even you gonna realize that it has to be a business and it seems like this entitlement of I just want to play and do what I want never seems to want to go away and it could just be because they're younger but I keep getting older but but the question is when do you think it's going to be truly seen as a commerce structure. It well, is now, but I'm talking about by the users. I think what I think is when they start entering the workforce yeah. and their their career uh, becomes dependent on it. I mean, because I yeah. the I have to tell you, I mean, it's it's been three years for me at Post and I, I love the students. I, I love the program. It's been great working with them. And they do. They understand the business part of it. It's just it until it really applies to them. Yeah. And that's that's also a generational thing. But, you know, but until it really applies to them, it's almost like um, a necessary evil. Yeah, it's almost considered a a necessary evil. It's like, okay, like like I talked a lot about also the privacy stuff and why isn't there more of an uproar about these companies having way too much of your personal information again as we talked about before given what social media is in a personal use context and a lot of them feel like well this is just how it is yeah they have this the price you have to pay right and like I don't agree with that, but, but that's I also, also why they jump to Instagram, right? That's We're, also why they jump to Snapchat because of this immediacy of it going away. Exactly. So where Facebook, they truly have been informed of what they're doing, so they don't really want to go there that much. So they think that Instagram, which obviously is part of Facebook, and Snapchat and these things don't do it, and I think it's a false belief and a false comfort. On their part yeah well and you know and the other thing also is and I actually show screenshots in my class <laughs> of um, all of the things you're agreeing to give access to uh, when you sign on to have these things on your phone and I ask them flat out I'll say so-and-so <laughs> um, why does Facebook need your calendar <laughs> 
And and actually, and one of the things I do early on in the semester is I'll say, you know, would you ever, uh, if somebody came up to you and said, I'm going to give you a device that's going to become an appendage on your body, <laughs> and it records everything you say, everything you do, and I go down the whole line of the shopping and the browsing and all this other stuff, would you let someone just do that? That's a great point to make to them. They must be like, no, where's my phone? Right. So and this is like low-fat ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you kind of know that can't be real, right. but you're agreeing to it anyhow because the ice cream tastes good. Yeah, and it's just and – and one of the things, too, and I, and I know that, that you do this as well because I always hear such great things about your courses. Thank you. Is it's not just teaching the material – but teaching the student as a whole person about yeah. being aware of the environment around them and the world around them and what's going on. And, you know, sometimes, especially in the workplace, you can really have tunnel vision. Oh, yes. And, and it's important to be aware sometimes of, you know, take a take a step back, see the bigger picture of what's going on. Like, like I still don't understand why people are not asking okay, Facebook, okay, Twitter, okay, Snapchat, whatever it may be, why do you need all of this information given what you do? Now, conversely, Patrick, if you go to the doctor and, um, you know, all of your medical files are now on a network. Yeah. Um, to me, yeah, it makes sense that they have a lot of my personal information because my health yeah. and well-being depends on it. Yeah, that, but this doesn't depend on it. Right. But, I get but, You know the Eli Lilly case? Do you remember that? You're a little too no. young. Eli Lilly, uh, in a group chat, the company, was helping people with their needs for medicine, right? Needs for mm -hmm. prescriptions. And the ever-popular reply all. So in the chat, the, the moderator hit a reply all, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And this one individual's medical history went out to everyone within the group. And that started opening the door. This is almost 20 years ago. And I'll look it up another time. I don't want to waste. I just do want to do something right now is reintroduce you. Do you sure. know that we've been talking for 30 minutes, Brian? No. That's bizarre, right? <laughs> Usually people can't stand to talk to me for five minutes. But I I, <laughs> we've been talking I, for 30, I, so I, I want to reintroduce you. Sure. Today we're talking with New York Times bestselling author, brand storyteller, adjunct professor at LIU Post, and a member of the Friars Club. Today we're talking with Brian Shields. Brian, this has been really great so far. I want to keep going with where we are, but I am going to shift a little bit. By the yep. way, I had lunch once at the Friars Club. You did? B what a bizarre just experience and space and gorgeous. Just yes. how weird to be in that building. It's a wonderful it's a wonderful place and a very special place. Yeah. I I've been a member there now 8 years and it's uh it's something where you just feel very lucky to be to be part of it. It's amazing. I want to I want to switch I I don't really want to switch off this much. Uh you're going to see what the next question is going to be. Sure. Uh has we were talking about students who who accept the uh, lecturing or the, the, the actual curriculum of social media management, social media marketing, and what you teach them. Uh, does their acceptance and the speed of their acceptance affect what you write as curriculum for that class? 
Do you take a look at over the room and go, yeah, they're not buying, they're not buying KPIs. They're not buying certain returns. They're not buying certain things because they're really not there yet. As you said, they haven't done it yet. They haven't had that internship at a claim yet. Right. And right. do you think it affects like you may want to come in with a second half of the semester that's like, this is really going to drive it home. And then you go, ah, maybe I can't do it. Maybe they're not accepting what I'm saying so quickly. I, I try to be on the lookout for that. Um, not there, easy. there are certain things like these core principles that I introduce early in the semester as like a foundation. And then I, I try to keep it kind of flowing uh, little bits throughout the semester. So whether it's you know, the principle of a return on investment or KPIs or, you know, some of those things, it's like um, cumulative in that way where it's like, okay, so whether we're talking about, uh, you know, maximizing Facebook and the differences between that and Instagram and Twitter or, uh, or crisis management. Well, that's, thank you. I know know we're on the same page because we talked a little bit. Like regardless of the subject, those core principle things have to apply have to be taken into account. So I, and I tell them that early on that, you know, that these core principle things, you have to know this now. Yeah. Because if, when the crisis management comes up, what are you going to default to lighting your hair on fire and running around the room? Right. Exactly. So, so, and I, I do gauge that and I, I try to be very aware of the, the quality of, the in-class assignments and homework uh, and the the quiz grades, even though I do understand that that not everyone is at their best during tests. But one of the things, Patrick, that I like. It's still school, Brian. Right. And, you know, and I'm very upfront with them about that as well. And I I think that that's one of the reasons I I try to do my best to build a rapport with all my students. And I, I speak to them like they're adults and I tell them, because you are legally adults, so there's that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, and and I'm very direct yet re- also respectful. But I, I think, you know, like uh, in my classes, you have to be able to do individual work and group work, group work and present your your findings and your recommendations to the class. That's uh, every week in some way. Good. Good. So. You know, and again, it's whether it's the experience that I had and I have amassed over the course of my career and certain things from teachers that I had that I thought, wow, you know, now I really appreciate what Professor So-and-so was having us do. Yeah. Um, That's a a long arc. I think that's the best way. That's the best way to put it. It's a long arc. And, you know, uh, you know I, it has been a payoff, and I've said that numerous times to uh, my alumni that come on this show. Some of them are out 12 years, 15 years. Wow. And it's great. One of mine, hopefully, uh, will come on is from 1988. Wow. 30 That's years awesome. ago. That's awesome. And it's fantastic. He's the COO of Snap.md. It's a telemedicine company. And wow. to go from designer to this, that's going to be an interesting day. Uh, here's let's go to crisis management for a second. Yeah. Uh, not that I, you know, we can't really get too into this because it was so insane and inappropriate. But if you've got someone like a Roseanne, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. You've got somebody blurting out on Twitter, but you're now her publicist. You're somehow responsible for that brand. Mm-hmm. When they, the really what I'm not, I'm not talking about Roseanne. What I'm really talking about is the autonomous nature of Twitter, mm-hmm. the autonomous nature of just having your iPhone and mm-hmm. being able to put out there whatever they want to put out there. And now you have spent five years building a social media base for these people. And now they're going to come out there with a statement that Lord knows where it came from. Right. How, right. how like nerve wracking is, I imagine it's in proportion to the client, but how incredibly nerve wracking this must be, huh? It, it is. And, and the thing is, Patrick, is that we are at a point in our society where there has never been, to my, I'll say to my knowledge, I don't like speaking in absolutes, but yeah. to me, there has never been a time where <laughs> the personal life of someone and their professional life is so intertwined. Unbelievable. And you it's unbelievable. have to be so careful. And, you know, you talk about Roseanne, the first, I thought of, of a couple of things right away. I, one was I felt terrible for the person who she said that about. Yep. Um, because it was in a – just the fact that it was said, but to be said in so, such a, a public way. Yep. And, and then, Patrick, I thought of the people who just lost their jobs on that show. That's what a lot of people said. Um, you know, one of the things that – you know, in entertainment especially, whether it's uh, TV – whether it's music, movies, the theater, you know, I want to see everything do well because when a show does well, many, many people are happy. Exactly. And people are employed from the actors and actresses to craft services, to makeup artists, to everybody. So that was what I thought of right away. And, um, there is one thing I I do want to say about that as I don't want to digress either. That's, um, if there were, cards given out for digressions i'd have a platinum one you know because i saw this by some people obviously her supporters is um saying that this was a free speech issue and and i talk about this a lot with my students as well um i disagree with that and here's why go ahead when you are an employee yes of an organization yep you agree, and, and this is can be said for a lot of different things. This is terms and conditions. Exactly. So, and we these kids and this group clicks on that like it was candy, right? Yes. And they 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 click on those like whack a mole, right? But now you apply that to something that maybe validates it, and in an authoritarian way, that boss worker, yeah. and it seems like they pull back from that, huh? Yeah, well, well, what concerns me, though, Patrick, also is, and this is, a, I think, a product of, you know, the world we live in, the eight-second attention span, which is just getting less. Um, yes, it and, is. And, and the kind of lack of, of the thought of educating oneself in a grander way is, you know, people just have these knee-jerk reactions because they want to type something, and it's, oh, well, that's a free speech issue. Just calm down a second. Just because you're replying first or within a certain matter of seconds or minutes right. doesn't mean that you're correct. 
This is fire in a movie theater. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, when I explain to them and I've had to explain this to some clients and I don't even do crisis management from most of, of, of my clients, it's more content and creative work. Yeah, it's but, too big of a thing for it has to be a big so, shot. But, and, but when you s sign an employee agreement, most employee agreements sure. have the employee agree to, let's just call it a morals clause exactly. or a behavior clause. Exactly. So Your actions you cannot damage the larger brand. Exactly. We so, have spent billions building ABC. Exactly. So... You know, it's not a free speech issue. Nope. A free speech issue would be um, she said that and because of that is now arrested. Yes. Right. And what frustrates me a lot is, especially when you have the court of public opinion, which I also value, um, you know, there has to be a moment to just let's let's just see what this is. And, and understand what's going on. And when I say that, I'm not condoning it as I feel like everything yeah. today has to be prefaced with like a d verbal disclaimer. Like it, it I'm does, not though. condoning it does. anything, it does. not defending anything. I'm just trying to explain what it may be. Give you another choice in your decision making. I exactly. Let's just talk about this first. It's, it's not, you know, uh, playing the role of public defender. Yeah. But to me, that was a case of an employee of ABC yes. making an incredibly disgusting and insane statement. Insane statement. And that's what she fell back on and what many people fell back on. Right. And, and that this that was employer, a bipolar moment. Right. And, and that employer saying this is not consistent with the values that we have. This is not for entertainment. This is not for anything of value. We are terminating our business relationship with this individual. And and it was something that you saw very quickly. And something else, Patrick, that I impressed because we do a, a one of our lessons in my class is dedicated to personal branding and something else that kind of runs through. Um, like a tapestry throughout my course is you just, you post something, it doesn't go away. No, it is there forever. And you have to be so responsible with what you are saying and doing and showing. And I also talk about this finding jobs. We talk about using LinkedIn and some of these other avenues as well. And you know, the first thing that most, I think the statistic is 90%, but I don't want to be quoted on that. So I'll just say a, a large majority of employers, I do this myself, is when I get a resume, you have about five seconds to catch that person's attention. Absolutely. If you make it through the preliminary round, they will do a Google search on you. Oh, yes. And, and, and they, they find what comes up. And that's step one, Patrick. A lot of times what's step two is taking that person's name and then doing the same search on Facebook, on oh, yeah. Instagram, on oh, yeah. Snapchat oh, yeah. to see how this person handles themselves and presents themselves to the public. We have never been. We have never been in a time like this before 
where your personal life and what you do as an individual is so closely connected and could have ramifications to your personal, uh, I'm sorry, to your professional life. And also personal. And that's a great little segue. Okay, I, I want to do one more thing again. I want to reintroduce you. Every 20 minutes, I'm going to be doing this. And I think it's a good thing. Today, we're talking with New York Times bestselling author, brand storyteller, adjunct professor at LIU Post, and a member of the Friars Club. And as we learned so far, one of the earliest people's, people in the game design industry. Which today, we're talking with Brian Shields. Brian, your recent point about uh, kind of about responsibility. Yes. And that was the gist of everything we just discussed about how this uh, vehicle, how this platform is so wonderful to reach, and but it's so dangerous when you walk out on it. it uh, years ago, years ago, friends of mine, my age group, 50s, 60s, said to me, I don't understand Twitter. These are media professionals who's just like, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Why do I care if you had a donut? And I explained to them, no, no, no. You should not care if I had a donut today. First of all, that's a given. But you should not care if I had a donut today. What you should care about is if Duncan is having a 20% off sale. And that's exactly what this is for. Like Ashton Kutcher did, getting millions of people onto it, now it became a business. And once it's a business, it starts to have responsibility. Absolutely. And this is a great little segue. See if I do okay here, Brian. <laughs> we talked about gaming at the beginning. We went to social media. Now we're coming back to gaming. Yes. Uh, and we talked a little bit about this before you agreed to do this because I don't play ambush games with guests. So now there's a game out there. There's a game called Active Shooter. This game is literally puts the person, the user, the player one, in the position of being an active shooter in a school environment. Now, you can also be a defender, but you can be the active shooter. So this game now allows the player to go through the hallways as an active school shooter. Yes. I I want to talk a little bit because this could be a five-hour discussion. You know, we really could go on forever about this responsibility now when it came to their release i believe on valve the mm-hmm. general the person who uh, deals with that the maybe the president of steam said we're going to let the marketplace decide how yes. responsible what what is the deal here which a little bit of your view because we could go for days on this what does that happen what does is that valid is this fire in a movie theater well, you know, this is something that I, I feel very strongly about as someone who's played. I, I grew up playing video games. Of I course. play video games. I've, I've worked in the video game business for now 20 years in some way. And, you know, I here's here's something very quickly I want to mention to your audience. Please. Um, for those who don't know. Both of them. In, both of the it, people who listen. <laughs> uh, in the video game business, when you make products – for what's called home console. So that's Microsoft, Xbox, Sony, PlayStation, Mm -hmm. uh, Nintendo. They're on the Switch now as their platform. You know, there's a process to get concept approval. So So somebody put a stamp on this. Well, here's the thing. The PC world is different. Mm -hmm. 
There is none of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, retailers, if you're talking about selling through, you know, traditional uh, retail avenues, which are now becoming more and more non-traditional with streaming, you know, oh, yes. there, would, there would be a buyer that would say, yeah, we're not, we would never sell a product like that. Yeah. So you have, so to speak, a developer, then you have a distributor and that distributor then makes the call. Yes. But exactly. in this environment, in the direct to user environment, yes. that's something like a Steam or a mm -hmm. Switch yep. or what Steam calls Valve is yeah. we've lost that or we yeah. don't need that or we don't right. have it. Right. So, so now and, and it's I see what you mean. It's a quick run. So liability now goes right to the user. Well, and that and that's the difficult part is and, and actually PayPal yesterday oh. announced that they were shutting down uh, the <laughs> account of the active shooter video game so that. Wow. Um, so so the thing is, is that it, it really becomes a discussion of are there standards who sets them? What are they based on? Um, and, you know, and that's the difficult part is, you know, the ESRB in terms of the, the, the home video game market uh, is the government rating system. It's taken very seriously. It's been around since 1994. Um, and I remember being at a claim that one of the founders of a claim was on the board of directors. Well, you have um, you have the Tipper Gore moment. Right, exactly. So, you know, but the difficult part for this, Patrick, is who does that when there is no governing body? And right. what I feel is, you know, all of these things are relative. Like, what's in good taste? Yeah, to well, me, all right. I, I don't want to get into an argument with you, and I also want to watch time. I want you to come back, and we're going to do a whole podcast just on I, this. I, 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 would, I would love to. I just, to I, me. I really do. Because here's my point with that. Yeah. Uh, we're desensitizing these kids. Right. And I, I, you could tap dance, whatever you want to say. Not yeah. you. Uh, you understand what I mean. The other side yes, of this yes. argument can throw it 12 ways. Yeah. Uh, but we are. Now, I just want to do one thing, and we're going to get back to it and go even further, uh, not into active shooter, but into uh, a little bit of the responsibility of any entertainment industry, but just really quickly, because, dude, we're at 50 minutes already. Wow, I know. I, I do want to. I do want to say just very, very quickly before I forget. Good. I personally, and I'm not a person for censorship no. or any of these other things, but I, I don't think a game like that should be created mm. and and sold. I, I just I think it's it's disgraceful. Well, I know you do, and I only brought this up because I knew that you had such good experience in this that I could tell from your writings online and also talking to you and his friends and this and that, that yes. you do understand the space. But obviously the morality is inside of you and you're, you're that person. So as a perfect person to discuss this, and I thought you were, here's a quick point I want to make. In my book, Veal, I, I write about the top titles that are out there today, okay? Mortal Kombat, Grand Theft Auto, Five Nights at Freddy, Slender Man, Underkill, PT Silent Hell, Call of Duty, Afterlight. If you read the reviews of most of these, mm -hmm. they're nowhere near this. You know, they're nowhere near this game. But it seems to be the ramp towards it. In any form of addiction, 
you're always looking for more. And again, we're going to do this in another uh, show because this is too long. Gaming addiction classified as a disorder by the World Health Organization. Yeah. January 2018. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying by that is not all, of course, but have we been ramping them towards needing more? And that's where these may be popping up. But again, Brian, if you want to do this, I will definitely redo this as a total 40 minutes of game and and a responsibility to product. Does that make sense? I, I, I love it. It's something that I've, I've dealt with at different levels uh, in different parts of my career. Um, yeah, I know. would not be talking to a hardcore gamer about this. You know what I mean? Because, you know, the, they would just be head-butting. The reason I ask you about this is because of, obviously, what I said before, an academic, a, a professional, an a established professional, an achieved professional, and I know the discussion is going to be really good. Oh, and thank we're, you. We're well, gonna, look, you make it easy. <laughs> well, we're going to see both sides of this really nice, and we're going to come back to that. I'll be honest with you, this whole thing of podcasting uh, and the discussions I, I don't know how this happened, but this got to be a pant load of fun. Uh, I want to just kind of get towards a wrap up. I think 53 minutes of talk. Oh, my God. It's like a good first date. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, it's amazing how quickly this goes. Uh, one of the things I did, first of all, uh, here's one of my points, and you get to jump in here. I put a little wrap up to the show. It's called Pencils Down. Okay. Uh, what did we learn today? Right. What did you and I really discuss? We discussed your background, which I think is perfect for what you're doing for a living right now. Thank you. Uh, the factor that we keep glomming over New York Times bestselling author like it's one word. That's bizarre right. that I get to talk to you. And the factor that you did that is something that I can't believe anybody would just quickly glom over that. Oh, yeah. He's a New York Times bestselling author. How many of those do you meet? Uh, I really am amazed by it, and I think you've, at 41, to have that on your resume, that's an amazing accomplishment. And I don't know anybody else who's done that, that I could talk to, that I could call up, and I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. I'm serious. And, and what else you have done is obviously the brands that you represent. This 20-year career so far, roughly? Is yeah, that what it's started been? Yeah, uh, started in 98. So you have jammed 40 years into 20, it seems. <laughs> uh, I want to talk, did you really work with improv? I did. I did. Um, so very, very quickly, um, I, I went through Second City, which uh, is heralded for incredible improv and sketch comedy. They were founded in Chicago by Del Close. Yep. Um, and in the early to mid 2000s, they had a school in Manhattan and, uh, and actually, the way I found it was I, I Googled a I wanted I used to love watching SCTV on Nick at Night. Absolutely. So in the, the mid 2000s, you know, early to mid 2000s, it became very popular for television programs to start coming out with box sets on DVD. Sure. And I still love a good box set. Yeah. And um, and I, I searched for SCTV 
at and found just by chance uh, that they had a school in in Manhattan uh, in Hell's Kitchen, and um, and I, I signed up and I was there for over a year taking uh, sketch comedy writing and it was one of the best things I ever did. Uh, and every quarter, at the end of every session, there would be a live showcase in the theater that was above Stand Up New York on the Upper West Side. Yeah, yeah. And um, and we would have the improv students act out our scenes. And it was one of the greatest times uh, in my life. It's actually how I met my wife. Amazing. Um, because she was an improv uh, one of the improv students. And, um, you know, I mean, it was just a, a wonderful time. And another thing where I always go back to those kind of teachings yes. of, you know, setting up structure and the storytelling aspect. And it has been applied to the different work that I've done on the business side. So sure. um, for anybody who loves sketch comedy, check out the old episodes of SCTV. They are amazing yes absolutely my wife is a huge fan and i became one from from listening to her one of the other things that we talked about today is crisis management and social media and how it's at best a crapshoot at best corralling some of these celebrities or some of these ceos it's a because it's just simply send on your smartphone very dangerous, uh, as Tina Fey, an SCT, SC, Second City alumni, says, yeah. it's yeah. like landmine hopscotch. Yes. You don't know where you're going to land and what's going to blow up. Uh, we have found out today that Brian and I are going to be talking a lot more. Yes. Whether it's uh, face-to-face or on this, or you'll maybe come into the studio. I'd I don't, love it. I don't know how far of a ride that is for you. Uh, it's, it's not far, and actually, Patrick, I have to tell you, I was at the studio about eight years ago okay um doing a a radio show from one of my books and uh it was great then and i i love uh listening on when i'm on campus and uh and your podcast has been phenomenal so thank you uh, however however you want to do it i just can't thank you oh yeah well you're gonna you're gonna be back in adam schleichhorn's gonna be back in we're gonna have a panel one day it's gonna be a lot of fun and also David Dickinson. I want to say that out loud right now. David Dickinson is a former student of mine from the IMA. He has been working behind the scenes to edit every one of these podcasts and to get them up for me. And I'm going to make sure he gets in the credits. He is a, a very good young man who's done a lot of wonderful things for me. Brian, how yes. do they – first of all, what's the name of your book? Uh, so oh, my, one of the, the seven, of, but whatever, the, the, the one that's the out there. Of, of my book is called Second Nature, The Legacy of Ric Flair and the Rise of Charlotte. It is available wherever books are sold. Barnes and Noble um, and Amazon are really the two main ways sure. that, that people have been uh, have been getting it. So uh, and thankfully, uh, it's been very well received. We're, I mean, in September, it's going to be a year anniversary that wow. it came out. Wow. And it's a, it's a wonderful story on the life of uh, the legend Nature Boy Ric Flair and his daughter, who is a current WWE superstar today. So it's a book about their lives, their relationships, the wrestling business, and what you see on television is also uh, intertwined with it. So, uh, you know, I, I hope people check it out. 
It's wonderful. Uh, what's the best way to contact you? So this is what I always say. I, I don't like to be followed, but I make an exception for social media. Mm -hmm. uh, people <laughs> can uh, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, it's at It's Brian Shields, all one word, I-T-S-B-R-I-A-N-S-H-I-E-L-D-S. I'm on LinkedIn as well. And um, within a few weeks, if I can, if I can get my uh, my stuff together here, I'm going to be launching a a website called BrianShieldsBooks.com. Excellent. And uh, and there's going to be a portfolio site of all of my client work as well. So Good. I'm trying to keep myself busy, and then of course we'll be seeing one another on campus uh, nice. in September as yes. well. So. Well, one of the things I do is I have a little site for this, and I put up a little slate of who it was and with a link to the podcast. But now that you said that, and others have, I'm going to make sure I have your LinkedIn uh, URL right there as well. Thank you. So keep promoting the people. Brian, thank you for today. It's a solid hour. One hour awesome. we've been talking. Awesome. Amazing. Dude, thanks a lot. Have a good rest of your summer. Thank and you. we'll be speaking again soon. All right, man. Thanks again for having me. You're welcome. Talk to you later, boss. Rock. Paper. Pixels. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit WCWP.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.